Danielle. And this is Dan. Together we pastor Hope Culture Church in Elgin, Illinois. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We hope it encourages you and inspires you. Here's today's message. Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you are doing well. We are finally getting to the part that the video talks about. Does anybody want love and joy and peace and all of those other things? I see a lot of heads nodding. I don't think anybody doesn't. If you don't, you can skip this one. Um, this is a good one, though. I'm excited. I've been looking forward to this. This is Paul has been writing this letter to the Galatians. Uh, we've been going through it slowly, week by week. And he's getting to the part where he gets to application. You know, he had to lay the theological groundwork. He had to explain his argument before he tells you. And this is what that means practically. And I think it's important that we get there because we need that spiritual foundation. We need that theological framework and we need the application. You know, sometimes depending on our our personality, we only want one or the other. We're like, just give me the doctrine, give me the knowledge, give me the theology, and we're good with that. But it doesn't lead to changing our life. Or some of us are just like, just tell me the application. I don't even need to know why. Just tell me how to do it. Tell me what to do. But it leads to a shallow just moralism. But we need both. We need the theology and we need the application. So we're getting there today. We're getting to the transition point for Paul. Later, chapter 5 and 6, he's, he's giving us the application. He's like a classical pastor. He's like, in conclusion, and then it still takes him a really long time. So that's what we're going to do for the next few weeks. We're going to land this book. And so I'm excited. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. Would you speak to us through your word? Thank you that it's living and active, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be getting there to the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and I'm very, very excited about it. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, we'll probably come back to it again next week because I actually want to spend some time on it. And in order to do that well, we're actually going to back up to the end of chapter four. Um, I think sometimes when something is very familiar, we don't grasp it fully. It's like, oh, I already know that. I learned that. Or I've heard those. I know those nine characteristics. And we kind of breeze past them or it's in one ear and out the other. And so I want to give us that picture of why this exists in this letter. You know, because sometimes we just have isolated it so often that we know these nine things. We know love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We know all of those. But why are they in this letter? What do they have to do with what Paul's been talking about? How does that have anything to do with legalism and grace and living the life that God has called us to? So we're going to start in Galatians chapter 4 in verse 21. He says, Tell me, you who are under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written, Abraham had two sons. He's bringing up Abraham again. He keeps bringing him up. He had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of the divine promise. Many of you are familiar with the story of Abraham. We've referenced it the last few weeks on and off. Uh, Abraham and Sarah were promised by God to have a great nation and all these descendants, and God was going to use them. Those who blessed them would be blessed. Those who cursed them would be cursed and all these things. But there's a delay between the promise and the promise realized. We've talked about that, and we, we realize that sometimes it's hard to wait. They had a 25-year gap between what God said and seeing it happen. And so what happens is 15 years into that 25-year gap, they're like, well, maybe, maybe we're the ones who are doing something wrong. And so they try to help. Instead of waiting, they try helping. She's like, well, maybe, maybe there is going to be a descendant, but maybe it's going to actually not be through me. And so they take things into their own hands. Abraham doesn't seem to put up too much of a fight about it, which is a whole separate issue, but he sleeps with the maidservant Hagar, and Ishmael is born. 
And then from there, we realize they hear from God, no, that was wrong. They are going to still have it. Ten years later, they actually have Isaac. And this is what Paul is bringing back up now. He's bringing back up these two different sons. He's saying, this is like what you're experiencing, church in Galatia. He's like, when you go back to the law, it's like taking things back into your own hands. It's not grace. It's not accepting it. It's not trusting that God will accomplish it. You're creating an Ishmael. You're doing it on your own instead of waiting for Isaac and trusting that God is faithful, that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. He pulls out a couple points from this story. And the first is that God keeps his promise to us. He will always do what he says. Verse 27, for it is written, he's quoting in Isaiah, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry out loud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. He's quoting Isaiah, who is referring to Abraham. I know it's a lot. We're going to get there. But Paul wants us to see that God can do more through our inadequacies, through our barrenness, through what is unexpected, than we can accomplish on our own. He's saying more are the children of the desolate woman, the barren woman, the one who couldn't even do anything, the one who couldn't offer anything of herself. She was beyond age. She had never been able to have kids. And yet through her, Isaac was born and the promise came. God doesn't need your potential in order to do what he wants to do. I think that's good news. I think that is very comforting for me, that he doesn't need something I have in order to do what he wants to do. He's just asking for my availability. He's the one who keeps the promise. He's the one who fulfills what he said he was going to do. He's a miracle-working, way-making God. It's not in the way that we would assume. It's not us trying to piece the pieces together to make what happened and manipulate the situation so that it's coming true on our own terms. It's trusting God to do what he said. I think of Zechariah 4, 6, where it says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. So often we think like the world thinks. We think like Samuel, when he's looking who to anoint, and he sees all these guys, he's like, not David probably, right? But God looks at the inward. He's not looking at the outward. He's not looking for strength. He's not looking for potential. He's looking to use you by his spirit. What God wants to do in you and through you is not dependent on your strength or ability. That's comforting. That's very comforting. That's that's good news. It's not about you. It's Christ in you. So that's one point that Paul is making. Paul is pointing out, hey, you don't have to go back to the law because it was never about doing it in your own strength. And then he also points out that those who are under the law always hate, always despise, always look down upon those who are under grace. This is verse 28 and 29. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of the promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born of the Spirit, the one born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. He's saying this is how it always goes. The one born of the flesh, the one who follows the law, in his time, it would have been the Judaizers and the Galatian church. At uh, Luther's time, you know, 505 years ago this week, we celebrate the Reformation. Um, It would have been the Catholic church versus the Protestant church. In our time, we see it too. We see it in Christians who are uh, wanting to be legalists. And we also see it that, you know, Muslims come from Ishmael. They trace it back all the way to Abraham through Ishmael, and we trace it back through Isaac. And we see uh, even the way that we view and approach God is so different. We view it as grace. We view it as we can't do it and he did it. And, and they view it as we have to earn it. 
and they despise us for it. It's always this way, that those under the law hate those under grace. The gospel of grace says that our striving, our zeal, our knowledge doesn't bring us closer to God. Our passion is good. Our desire to grow is good, but it doesn't make us closer to God. It's him that came to us. Continuing on, I think those are two important points that Paul makes that actually frame chapter 5. So he says in verse 30, but what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. I love this. This is when he's getting to the part where he's pulling all of the, the arguments from the Old Testament and his personal experience together. And he's like, the whole thrust of this has been so that you understand you're free. You're free from the law and you're free to pursue love. We see that he means love because he brings it up throughout chapter 5. In verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts, if you ignore the rest of the message, get this, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He's been leading the whole book to this point. He's like, you're free, and that freedom leads you to live your faith, which expresses itself in love. This is going to make more sense and be even more important in a little bit. He's, he brings it up again later in the book when he talks about, um, or later in the chapter, he brings up how faith is the culmination, or, or love is the culmination of our faith, that it expresses itself to the world around us, and that the freedom we have actually leads to that love. The freedom and grace offered leads to that love. It's for freedom Christ has set us free. He then says, stand firm which is a very militant term. He's saying, stand firm. Don't go back. Don't be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. This has been what he's been talking about the whole time. Don't add anything to the gospel. Don't go back to how things were when you had to do it on your own. Stand firm. There's the idea that you can be partially free. You know, you can experience legally the freedom that God offers. You're justified. You're made right with God. You're reconciled to him. You have your sins wiped away, but you're not actually experiencing that love worked out in your life. You don't have those things producing themselves. You don't have love and joy and peace the way that you, you feel like should be if it's from him. It's like you were in jail and you were declared free, but you stayed in the cell. What Paul begins to do is explain that staying in the cell is simply not walking in the Spirit. He says, you're forgiven, you're set free, you can go anytime, but you won't experience that freedom till you live in the power of the Spirit. He begins to unpack that in chapter 5. In verse 2, he says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. He's saying, if you go back to saying, I have to do this on my own, I need the law, I need other things, it is partly me. He's like, Christ is of no value then. Christ came so that you could be removed from all those things, so you could be set free. Going back to a works-based righteousness is leaving the gospel. Let's skip ahead to verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. 
but do not use this freedom to indulge the flesh. This is important. He says, rather serve one another humbly in love. Again, that idea of faith working itself out in love, expressing itself in love. You've been set free for freedom's sake, but that freedom isn't so that you can do whatever you want. It's so that you're free to live the life you were intended to. You're free to walk in the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, to have Him working in you and through you. This is a major point because the Judaizers were worried if they leave the law and they actually understand grace, they're going to do crazy stuff. Paul addresses this in many of his letters. He talks about it in Romans. He's like, well, if grace abounds, should I just sin more? And he's like, no. In fact, when you understand grace, it makes you live the life you're called to live. It allows you the freedom. It makes more sense than why you're commanded to love. Jesus says the greatest command, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting that he's commanding you to do something you can't just be commanded to do. You can't do that on your own. You can't just muster up love for God and love for others. We love because he first loved us. That's the only source of that love. And the freedom Christ offers, the freedom of grace, is that you can walk in that love, in his strength and by his power. So he's saying, don't use that freedom to to satisfy the desires of the flesh, to do whatever you want. In fact, use that freedom to serve one another humbly in love. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He's saying, when you enter grace by faith, it's like you left this room and you're in this new room where there is no judgment, there is no shame, there's no condemnation, that God has forgiven you for everything you have done and will do. But because of that doesn't mean you get to just do whatever you want. You actually realize how much he loves you, realize the price he's paid for you, and you want to live for him. It changes it. It changes it so that you can still feel those old desires. He's like, there's still a war inside of you where this, there's these desires to do things as you've always done them, but the spirit is at war with that. He's saying the flesh desires one thing and the spirit desires another. They're contrary to each other. I think it's important to note that the flesh, is that word doesn't just mean your body. He's not just talking about our physical bodies. He's talking about our natural desires that are contrary to what God wants. And so he begins to list in this next part healthy fruit and unhealthy fruit. He talks about when you walk by the flesh, you produce unhealthy fruit from the flesh. When you walk by the Spirit, you produce the healthy fruit of the Spirit. And so the whole book has been about how we are free in grace that we don't have to go back under the yoke of the law, that we are completely forgiven, we're made right with God, but that freedom gives us the choice to walk by the Spirit or continue to gratify the desires of the flesh. And Paul's argument here is that if you truly understand grace, you're going to choose the Spirit. It's going to be a natural outflow. So he begins to list all of these characteristics. He actually has like 16 negative ones and 9 positive ones. So we'll go through the 16 negative ones really quick. 
The acts of the flesh are obvious. He says sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Those are the first three. He kind of puts them in different categories. The first three all have to do with sexual immorality. Um, he he lists them. If you do like a word study on these three Greek words, they mean three very different things. Um, and then the next two have to do with corrupted religion. He says idolatry or sorcery. Um, this idea of putting something or someone else ahead of God in our priority. Or the idea of sorcery or witchcraft, depending on your translation, being manipulation in order to get what you want. Then he lists eight words describing relational conflicts. Half of them. Half of the things uh, that the flesh produces are relational conflicts. I think that's really interesting. There's like all of these things. He's like, when you just do what you naturally want to do, it leads to these 16 things that don't produce healthy fruit in your life. It's going to create all kinds of problems for you. Half of them are going to be relationship problems. The final three are related to kind of that idea of that dopamine hit, that desire to, to feel better. He says drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. He lists all of these, and he's, he's like, this is what the flesh leads to. It's things we naturally desire. It's the things we're naturally bent to. It's the things that we do on autopilot and default. He says, in contrast, though, we have the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, he gets to the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, depending on your translation, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Joy is the idea of delighting in God. It's bigger than our circumstances. It's not just I'm happy because things are going well. It's I have joy because of who God is. I see him for his, his nature and I can have joy in the middle of hard times or peace when your soul feels at rest. It's drawing on the Old Testament idea of shalom, when things are as they should be. They might not be as they should be on the outside, but on the inside they are. I have peace with God. Kindness is that disposition to take care of others, to think about what they need, to be moved by their needs and their burdens. Goodness. The idea of goodness here is, yes, doing what is right and good, but it has with it the idea of integrity, the idea of things being in line, that you are consistent in your way that you live. Faithfulness, consistent loyalty, staying with somebody or something or believing with them even when it's been hard. Gentleness, that not just softness, but that humility. I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about humility. He says, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I think gentleness has to do with an outward focus, that you're not just thinking about yourself. And the last one is self-control. The ability to bring your natural desires under submission to God's will. These are the fruit of the Spirit. This is what God produces inside of us. This is when we walk in him, these things start to show up in our life. Faith produces love. And these are kind of like a picture of holistic love. Different than the 1 Corinthians 13 list, but they work well together. That this is what God produces in us. It's interesting to think that Paul chose 
fruit. He didn't say fruits. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. Even though there's nine of them, it's fruit. They go together. Even though there's many of them, it's just one thing. I think there's a few things that we can draw from the fruit of the Spirit. And when we think about this, Paul is saying it's the fruit from God. It's not us. We're not doing that. So the first thing to take note of is that healthy fruit comes from healthy roots. Healthy fruit comes from healthy roots. It's not something we muster up. It's not something we try to create on our own. I think sometimes what happens is we look at a list like the fruit of the Spirit and it becomes our, our motivation to be like, I want to be these things. And we should want to be these things. But what happens is we're like, I'm going to focus on patience this week. I'm going to be the most patient person. Here's nine ways I'm going to be patient. Here's the bullet points for each of those. And this is what I'm going to do in this relationship. And I'm going to be so patient. But what we're doing is we're, we're, we're stapling fruit onto a dead tree. We're using some glue and we're picking up bananas and we're slapping them on a tree that is dead. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be like, I can produce this, but you're not supposed to produce it on your own. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Healthy fruit comes from healthy roots. God uses this imagery throughout Scripture. Jesus in, in John 15 talks about abiding, this idea of being connected to God. I love this imagery because you don't outgrow it. There is no aging out of it. There's not like I had a lot of time. I put in the work. I became like Jesus over the last two decades and I made it. I can coast from here. No, because if you cut yourself off from the source, you're no longer going to be producing the fruit. There is no outgrowing this. We're all equally dependent on Christ as our source. We need him to produce these things in us. In fact, instead of thinking of the fruit of the Spirit as something I am trying to obtain on my own, I should think of the fruit of the Spirit as what Jesus is. Think about that. Where is more perfect love displayed than Jesus? He had peace. He had joy. He was faithful. He was good. He, he had all of these perfectly. That makes sense because the New Testament talks about the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So when we become Christians, which is something Paul has been talking about in this book, the down payment of that, the thing that marks us as separate and new in him, is the Spirit. It's Christ's Spirit. The same Spirit that lived in him lives in us. So he begins to produce those things inside of us. It's a natural outworking when we spend time with God. So that leads us to the classic church application. Spend time with God. Abide in him. Read the word. Pray. Don't do it so that you feel better about yourself. That's leaning right back into works and legalism and all those things. Do it so that he can produce those things in you. The order really matters. The priority and the motivation. I would just want to be with him. And it's going to make me more like him. I'm not going to try to do it on my own. I'm not going to pick up fruit and staple it to a dead tree. I'm going to focus on my roots. I'm going to be connected. I'm going to abide in Christ. I'm going to pursue him and his righteousness. The second thing I want to point out is that you are only as mature as your most immature fruit. You are only as mature as your most immature fruit. The reason I think this and other people think this in commentaries I read is that it's singular. 
He says it's the fruit of the Spirit. They go together. You might have a personality that is naturally a little bit more patient. So it would be easy to be like, I'm doing pretty well. I'm measuring my best one. But when we measure the one that we're struggling with the most, that's probably a better accurate reading of how much of him he's producing in us. We're as, as mature as our most immature fruit. It's the idea of just yielding and saying, God, I, I definitely still need you. I need you today. I need you tomorrow. I've needed you yesterday. And what I love about this is it convicts all of us. It convicts the most mature believer in the room, and it convicts the person who just gave their life to Christ. We all have room to grow in our Christ-likeness. When we stop measuring ourselves amongst ourselves, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, how far I am versus how far you are versus how far they are. When we start just looking and measuring ourselves against Christ, we're like, God, I've fallen short. I need you. I still need you. I'm desperate for you. I think one of the best applications of this is just to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. The finished work of Christ. God, I can't do it on my own. I have never been able to. I need you today. I need you to produce your fruit in me today. I need love and joy. I need peace. I need self-control. I can't do it on my own. Preaching the gospel to ourselves every day is the best way to grow in Christ. It reminds us that it's not us. It actually allows the Spirit to speak to us about the things He needs to speak to us about. I also think we need to focus more on the fact that he has done these things for us and will produce them in us, than the fact that we're not doing it on our own. For every little bit that we spend thinking, man, I'm not producing that, we need to spend 10, 20, 100 times thinking, man, he has done that for me. It's completely paid for. It's completely forgiven. I truly believe that we are more motivated by what God has done for us than what we are currently doing wrong. In fact, that's what Paul says. Walking in the Spirit is the best way to avoid the flesh. Walking in the Spirit is how we avoid the flesh. Depending on how you were brought up and raised, this is different than the way we think. Depending on how you've heard it preached before when you're told, don't do all these things, which you shouldn't do, the best way to not do those things is walk in the Spirit. It's to actually focus on what you should be doing. It's replacing those desires. Look at verse 16. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. I think we spend too much time focusing on putting to death what Christ has already said he's put to death in us, and not enough time walking in the Spirit. I think this is why throughout the New Testament, it's constantly trying to redirect our attention upward. Focus on what's above. Focus on what is lovely and pure and true. It doesn't mean we never get convicted. It means we get convicted, but we say, God, thank you. Thank you that you're going to be changing that area in me. Thank you that you're, you're the one who can do that. I, I surrender that to you. I ask that you would move in my life. It's very positive 
versus just focused on putting those things to death. In fact, at the end of the list, the end of the fruit of the Spirit, he talks about how against these things there's no such law, which is kind of funny of Paul to say, because the whole argument of his book is about the law. And he's saying, when you do these things, you're going to be doing what God wants anyway. When you're walking by the Spirit, you don't even have to worry about the law. You're naturally going to be doing it. And so he, he kind of ties together the whole argument of the book. And then he goes to talk about how we have already put to death the flesh. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. He wants us to realize that Christ is enough. The finished work of Christ. He has paid for our sins. He's not just dealt with the penalty. He's also dealt with the power. They don't have to control us anymore. They don't have to dominate. He talks about them as controlling desires. He says the desires of the flesh. That's like strong compulsion, this urge that we have. He says the best way to fight that urge isn't to focus on the urge and be like, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's actually to focus on the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. The Puritan preachers talked about this as the expulsory power of a new affection. They always use big words. But they're like, when you have something you love more, you don't love that other thing as much. They're like, instead of focusing on what you don't want in your life, focus on God changing you. Redirect your focus. Paul actually argues that when we focus on the flesh, we leave the gospel. We make it and take it back into our own hands. See, if our goal is Christ-likeness, it's not that we make ourselves like Christ. It's actually that we let him do it. He's saying we can't, the way you started is the way you finish. You're saved by grace through faith. There's nothing you can add. There's no works you can do. That's actually how you're supposed to keep living the Christian life every day. You're just supposed to stay in the gospel. Every day. Every day, Christ is enough for me. I've fallen short. I can't do it on my own. Make me more like you. Every day, walk by the Spirit. Healthy fruit comes from healthy roots. We need to spend time with Him. You're only as mature as your most immature fruit. And walking in the Spirit is the best way to avoid the desires of the flesh. I can't help but think, what if we started doing that really well? Like, what if all of us collectively were walking in the Spirit more and more each week? It's not instant you don't instantly become like Christ. Paul understands that it's, it's walking. It's a journey. It's taking your next step in following Jesus. It's slowly becoming more like him. But if we actually redirected our, our attention away from, from what we might be doing wrong and focused on, God, how are you changing me? We'll actually be looking more like Jesus next year than we would if we just focused on killing our own sin. I 100% believe that. If we focus on God, he'll produce love, joy, peace, patience. He's going to produce all these things in us. We're going to start to look more like him. We're not going to want to do that other stuff as much. But when we just focus on not doing the other stuff, it's all we can think about. You guys know what it's like. 
Those of you with kids, no cookies. What are they thinking about for the next 30 minutes? How they can't have a cookie. But if you give them something else to occupy their mind and time, they're not even thinking about it. We, I started doing this because our kids have a habit of eating on the couch, and I don't like it because I'm constantly sitting in crumbs. So instead of saying, don't eat on the couch, I've been saying, eat at the table. And it's working a lot better. It's working so much better. And that's how God is with us. Instead of focusing on just not doing the things of the flesh, which we shouldn't do, he wants us to focus more on what he's already done for us and what he wants to do through us. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Don't produce fruit by picking up fruit and stapling it to a dead tree. Be connected to God. Let him produce it in you. You don't walk by trees and hear them working hard to produce fruit. There's no grunting. There's no moaning. It's just good, healthy roots and good, healthy soil over time. Just spend time with Jesus. Focus on what he's done and what he wants to do through you, and you'll become more like him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this beautiful truth. God, the gospel, every time we go to it, is better than we remembered. It's better than we thought. You continue to prove that you are a good and faithful God. God, I thank you for everybody here, and I ask that you would help us to become more like you. God, that you would help us to produce good, healthy fruit, not by effort, but by faithfulness, by nearness, by good roots in healthy soil. God, I thank you that we're set free, that just like Abraham, we don't have to take things into our own hand, that we can trust you are able to do more than we could on our own. That we don't have to try to make it happen, God, that you've already told us it will happen. That it's by your spirit, not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. God, I pray that we'd be a transformed church because we're transformed people. God, that we'd be walking in the spirit, in step with you, out of love by you. God, that we would focus and understand that the main thing is faith working itself out in love, expressing itself in love. God, would you change us from the inside out? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're taking communion today, and I think it's, it's always a good day to take communion. But I love even just the simplicity of going back to the gospel the way we did today and saying, God, we need you then, we need you now. We didn't outgrow the fact that we're dependent on you for life, for change, for transformation. For those who maybe are in the room or watching online or, or listening later, if you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, that first step of saying, I admit that I have sinned, I admit that I, I can't do it on my own, but I believe that Jesus came and lived the life I couldn't. He died for me so that I can now live for him. If you've never made that decision, communion is for those of us who have. But if you're ready to make that decision now, you can take communion with us. If you're ready to say, I, I, I need that. I need God to work in me and through me. I understand that on my own, I'm separated from him. I can't produce the life he's asking me to. All you have to do is come to him with those thoughts. God, I need you. Please forgive me. Please fill me with your spirit. Make me new again. 
In your name, amen. When you pray that, he adopts you into his family. He gives you his spirit inside of you so that you can look more like him. He, he welcomes you in with open arms. So if you just made that decision now or you've been following Jesus for a long time, we're going we're gonna to take communion together. And communion does three things. It, it slows us down and helps us to reflect. Where do I need the gospel again? Where do I need forgiveness again? It's a preparation. It allows us to partake and and celebrate and remember what God has done. And it also causes us to look forward to his coming again. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So we just want to take a minute and just say, God, examine me. Search me and know me. Is there something that I have that I need to just release to you, confess to you. Just take a minute and go ahead and do that. And then as you pray, after you give those things to the Lord, turn that into thanksgiving to thankfulness. God, thank you that you forgive me for that. Thank you that that's not who I am anymore because you've forgiven me and you've also given me the power and the desire to see change in that area. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for the gospel. That the gospel doesn't just forgive us and set us free from the punishment, but it also sets us free to live the life you're calling us to live. That freedom leads to love. That as we understand more fully how much we've been forgiven, we naturally begin to look more like you. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear about what God is doing in your life. To share your story or a prayer request, simply hit contact on our website. You can also support the ministry of Hope Culture Church by visiting hopeculturechurch.com. We hope you have a great week.